is the Lavan, who is Al Rahman, who is Al Manan, Muhammad CNN World News reports that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the Western world. If that's true, then Christians, and even if it's not true, Christians are going to have to start learning a few responses, a few things to say when they encounter Muslims on the streets and on the bus, uh, just in, in common day life. Uh, that's the topic of today's Table Scraps, the Internet exclusive edition of Table Talk Radio. And um, our guest for this edition is Dr. Adam Francisco. He received his uh, doctorate in uh, historical theology and Christian Muslim studies from Oxford University and uh, is assistant professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Francisco, welcome to Table Scraps. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating what we have here. We, we we seem to have almost two different sides of this uh, of this discussion. H- here you have um, things like nine eleven or the, the the London train bombings, or even more recently the Fort Hood shootings. Uh, on one side, and on the other side, you have organizations like CARE, the uh, Council for American Islamic uh, Relations, saying that uh, that's really not true Islam. How is it that an outsider can determine what Islam really believes? Yeah, great question. But the, that's one of the major questions uh, facing the American or Western public now. I would say uh, that you know, the probably the best place is to go to the Quran and read the Quran. Now that itself has its problems. The Quran's not an easy book to read. The translations, um, if they're literal, are they read like King James English. If they're liberal translations, they're a little easier to read, but you don't get the real, the whole story or the real deal. Um, best case scenario, the best thing to do is to read the Quran in a chronological way, which means you don't read it from front to back. You have to skip around in the chronic text. There have been, however, um, cop- or versions of the Quran, translations of the Quran, that have been published very recently, uh, by a group called the Center for the Study of Political Islam that puts together both an abridged Quran or, and the other one is a simple Quran that have it arranged chronologically. And so when you read the Quran, you have to be aware of several things, but one of the more important things is that there is a, a doctrine of progressive revelation and abrogation at work uh, in the Quran. So if you get something stated in a a passage in the Quran that is viewed as being given to Muhammad or revealed through Muhammad later in his life that contradicts earlier things, the later revelation rules out earlier revelations. So early on in the Quran you have a passage that says, uh, has Muhammad talking to Muslims, telling them not to dispute with Christians and and, uh, Jews, uh, but rather there to tell Christians and Jews that to, that we all worship the same God and we all believe in the same revelation. That's abrogated or ruled out by a passage that is viewed by the strong majority of the Muslim world historically and, and contemporaneously that says chapter 9, verse 29, uh, rules it out. And 9, verse 29 says, kill Christians and Jews unless they're willing to submit to Islam or submit in an Islamic state as uh, second-class citizens. So um, you bet the Quran would be the best place to go. One would be surprised. One will be surprised what they find, especially if you if 
bought into this line that Islam is a religion of peace. Would the average Muslim that I run into on the streets here in America know about the doctrine of abrogation? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't. I, I would say if there's a serious Muslim, if they attend mosque and have done some study or been taught something about their faith, apart from just sort of uh, asserting that they're Muslim and and not really learning anything about it, they would they would certainly be aware of it. It's very prominent in the history of classical Islamic thought. So the ones you find on, for example, college campuses, if they're part of a Muslim student association or other group, will definitely be aware of it. But they will do their best uh, to try to keep from talking <laughs> about it because it does really expose quite a bit about uh, the nature of Islam. How do you respond to people say, hey, look, Christians have a dark past, too. A lot of people have used the, the Bible uh, for killing, uh, namely in the Crusades. Uh, how, do you, how do you respond to such an assertion? Yeah, well, um, there, are, there are a couple ways. One is just because somebody claims to be a Christian and be acting in the name of Christ doesn't necessarily mean they are. Um, Christ is pretty clear, or was pretty clear. His kingdom is not of this world. That pretty much severs any sort of political um, dimension to his uh, to the Christian faith. Although that doesn't mean Christians are absolved of engaging in the political realm. Um, so things like the Crusade, uh, even the reconquest of Spain, the Salem witch trials, those are aberrations of of Christian teaching. Whereas in Islam. While the issue of terrorism may be up for debate, that a Muslim uh, should strive in a perpetual way to advance the cause of Islam with whatever way is possible, whether it be political persuasion, diplomacy, uh, military might, uh, polemics and apologetics, or or whatever other way, that is completely commensurate with, with uh, the teachings of classical Islam. Is it uh, an effective apologetic task to prove to a westernized Muslim um, what we're talking about, that, that the Quran, what the Quran really teaches? Um, I, I've, practically speaking, I've found that it's not. Um, I would actually, my advice would be to avoid those sorts of things, those sorts of questions, whether, you know, what's, what's uh, more conducive or what's more... Uh, what, what's a religion that blends in well with, or blends in better with the Western pluralistic society? Because the question is, especially between Muslims and Christians, and hopefully all people, is what is true? That's the apologetic, uh, big apologetic question. What is true and how do you know it? Um, and I would strongly encourage anybody who has discussions with Muslims to avoid getting into uh, de- debate over values and um, you know, consequences, because uh, that, that really distracts from uh, the question of truth, and it also detracts from the, you know, the sorts of debates that Christians really ought to be uh, engaged in, and the sorts of debates that Christians can certainly win when, it's, um, when the debate is concerned evidence. Not that we're interested in just winning debates, but that certainly is part of the apologetic task. Uh, let, let's let's um, talk about that second half of the what is truth and how do you know it. 
this being the, the issue of epistemology. Now, now Christians will have the Bible in hand. Muslims will have the Quran in hand. Uh, a, a Christian isn't going to believe what the Quran says, and a Muslim likely won't believe what the Bible says. How can Christians begin talking with Muslims if they don't even have the same source of, source of what is true? Yeah, really, uh, another great question. I probably said that to all your questions now, but um, <laughs> uh, first, um, what you first mentioned that you know Christians will have their Bible in their, on their hand or in their hand, and they won't believe what the Quran says, and vice versa. What I've actually found recently is that. While Muslims certainly will not compromise, more and more Christians are compromising the truth of scriptures and the authority of scriptures, especially in the face of Islam. It's really quite startling how easy or how quickly some pretty respectable evangelical theologians have kind of caved into uh, some of the theological perspectives of the Quran. But that's another topic for another day, I guess. I, I would suggest when it comes to Muslim-Christian dialogue or evangelism debate or apologetics, um, there's what we, what we ought to look for, not with just with Muslims, but with anybody, is some sort of hypothetical neutral territory or some sort of common ground. And while I don't think there's any theological or really any political common ground between Christians and Muslims, there is some common historical ground. Both religions purport to have some sort of beliefs, of course, in Christianity, the beliefs are much uh, different, but they have beliefs about a person named Jesus. The Quran teaches, uh, in, in several places, uh, as, aspects or communicates aspects about Jesus' life. Um, all in all, uh, in the Quran, Jesus is seen or is taught to be a virgin born, but a human, and that's it. Um, a human who was also a prophet of Allah, uh, who did not die on a cross, that's Quran 4, 157 and 158, who in fact was who was taken up into heaven, so escaped death, um, and will at the end uh, times, at the last day, Quran 5, 116 and 117, return to judge, um, especially Christians, and in fact will disown himself, or disown Christianity. Uh, so it's a radically different view of Jesus, where I focus in, and my, if I get a chance, um, is on the issue of the crucifixion of Jesus. It is, while certainly there's all sorts of theological ramifications of it, it is a basic historical question. Was he or was he not crucified? Islam will come out on the negative. The interesting thing is, all the historical facts in the first century and the second century say he was crucified. And this isn't just, you know, this isn't just pulling from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there are Jewish and also Roman sources that treat this as just simply a brute fact of history. And so it's a debate that the Christian can win, but the, 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 the problem is, there are two things connected with the debate. One is Muslims will try desperately to force the Christian apologist into having a discussion of ideology or philosophy, you know, um, I would suggest keeping the the issue, the main, keeping the issue of whether he was crucified or not a historical question. Don't be sidetracked into questions about, um, you know, whether, whether perhaps a 7th century text might have had it, had it right, um, after all, despite the, all the evidence from this, 
21st century that says otherwise. I've seen Muslims try to do that. They will, after you give a present, after I give a presentation of the the historical evidence behind the crucifixion, um, they will then say, "Well, that's just your interpretation or your philosophy. Uh, the Quran has a different interpretation." No, the question is, what do the facts say or what do the evidences say? And I would I would leave it at that. But then, if once you've established that it is it certainly is more reasonable or more factual or reasonable to conclude that Jesus was crucified, that, as a historical event, opens up theological questions. You know, well, why was he crucified? Um, others, I, I've, I've gone this direction before, and I've seen others do it to great effect. They will then ask the question, what happened to Jesus after he was crucified? And a historian or a person acting as a historian, not a person of faith, can argue uh, convincingly for an empty tomb on Easter morning. And so from that, those are facts, crucifixion and the empty tomb. From that, one can suggest a, a, a resurrection from the dead. And I would even argue you could demonstrate this historically as well. Um, none of this, of course, no apologist claims this, despite uh, the caricatures of apologetics out there. No apologist would say that this can convert an individual to saving faith, but what it can do is establish a a historical faith or a historic or a historic faith or human faith, as as uh, like Pieper and others will talk about it. You've just described uh, sort of my approach to apologetics. Apologetics, no matter who I'm talking to, um, does that 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 being that uh, that the the New Testament documents uh, can be taken as historical. Uh, documents, historical truths, does, uh, well, describe for me the kind of historical reliability that the Quran has and how it matches up with other historical facts. Yeah, if, if you, the uh, interesting question, if you ask a Muslim, they will tell you that the Arabic text they have in their Quran today is an exact, is at least in theory, an exact match the Quran that was composed around 650 A.D., so about 20 years after Muhammad's death. Uh, the story is that after Muhammad dies and the Muslim state begins expanding by force, uh, the most zealous people were on the front lines in the great struggles or jihads. And it also happened that these, these zealous people were also those who had spent their entire, or most of their time with Muhammad over the course of 22 or 23 years of his so-called prophethood. And so as they're fighting, they're dying off, and the Quran had not been written down. And so, a caliph or a you know a king or a you know a governor uh, named Uthman, the third of of the caliphs, decided it would be wise so so that the Islamic world would not leave or lose the Quranic message to write it all down. Put it together, and allegedly, um, you know, it was put together just as Muhammad had had issued these revelations, and it's been copied faithfully ever since. That's the assumption. The facts say otherwise. Um, there was a discovery. You can go on Google and, and check this out by a, a German named Gerd, G-E-R-D, Puin, P-U-I-N, in 1979 of, of very early Quranic manuscripts dating to the mid-7th century that... Um, don't actually coincide or aren't the same, exactly the same as the the, Quranic, the Arabic Quranic text that we have today. So it shows that the manuscripts itself have developed, that the that the text itself hasn't always been the same. 
And in fact, if you look at Muslim sources, the earliest Muslim sources, they tell a story of a Quran that was put together around 650 A.D., and then when it was brought or made public, people came out of the woodwork saying, wait a minute, the, what I remember is different than what's written down here. Or my family has a private um, you know, collection of things Muhammad said that contradict your Quran. And the Muslim sources say, well, what the caliph did then was burned all of that contradictory evidence. Some of it did survive, though. Um, and you, you can go into all sorts of detailed studies looking at this. Um, the interesting thing is that um, while this should rattle the foundations of the Muslim world, and we might see this in the future as a textual uh, or a critical edition of the Quran is scheduled for publication, actually last year it still hasn't come out, but it will be coming out fairly soon. Um, what's interesting with, with Muslims is they will try, they will avoid this sort of uh, inquiry into the nature of the Quranic text. Um, uh, for probably for a variety of reasons, but what you find them doing is turning this sort of argument against the biblical text, and they will. Many I've encountered uh, several you know, young Muslims at university campuses who have who aren't students in theology or anything like that, but they all know the works of Bart Ehrman and and literature like this um, pretty well. They can quote uh, page numbers from specific books, and they will argue that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are uh, simply the product of second, third century innovations of a, of a text that has been corrupted over the, of a, over the course of time. And so dealing with Muslims, you've got to be prepared to defend the historical reliability of, of at least Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Would the, would the common Muslim, <clears throat> excuse me, would the common Muslim even recognize textual criticism within the Quran? Um, they, they, there are some. There are some, uh, in fact, the critical edition of the Quran that's supposed to be coming out here soon. Um, there are, there's a group of liberal Muslims involved in the project. So there are some, but for the most part, it's assumed that the, you know, the term they'll use is uh, perfectly preserved. So they will assume that the Quranic text has been perfectly preserved by God um, for, through the centuries. So there's no point in, in looking at the, the history of the manuscripts, because it's, it's, of course it all matches up. That's their assumption. It, it um, just seems a little hypocritical to me to, for, for them to point to textual <laughs> variances in the Bible, but to then assume divine preservation of the Quran. Yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, this is something that... Uh, you know, I sometimes mention when, when I have a, a Muslim tell me that, you know, that when they, they're quoting Bart Ehrman or maybe even something, you know, from early, you know, maybe the 19th or early 20th century, some of these higher critics, Boltman or somebody, um, I sometimes make the point that, you know what would happen if you applied the same, these same standards to the Quran? Or I'll ask them if they've even considered that, and usually they haven't. Because, again, this assumption, what you find with Muslims, and it's, this isn't just Muslims. This is people all across the board, regardless of religion. They will presume their ideology or their worldview um, and in spite of factual evidence. So, you know, they can, for example, with the, the issue of the crucifixion, you can give uh, a, uh, a historically solid case, which, I mean, it's real simple, actually, 
and argue that Jesus was, in fact, crucified. Nobody would even think any otherwise, unless you're a little off. Um, and a Muslim, I've had it happen to me several times, will say, well, that's what you believe. Hmm. And rather than, uh, I mean, it's easy to get flustered, but I, what I would suggest is pushing the issue. No, it's not what I believe. This is what all the evidence and the facts say. And if you're on a college campus, um, the student should be interested in following the evidence where, now whether they are practically speaking, that's a different issue, but they should be, and the Christian apologist should emphasize that this is what we're interested in as free so-called scientific individuals, following evidence where it leads, despite the conclusions. Concerning, I'm, I'm, of course, you can probably detect, convinced that uh, Christianity is objectively true. Um, there's a lot of Christians who would be uncomfortable nowadays talking about it that way, but I'll still hold on to that <laughs> until I'm proven otherwise. Many Muslims, <clears throat> concerning the, the Quran, many Muslims point to the complexity and the perfection of the Quran to prove its reliability. Uh, there's that, what, that that challenge in the Quran that if, if this is not from God, then, then uh, you challenges any man to come up with a book just as perfect and just as complex. Um, or, you know, the somehow that because people can memorize the whole Quran, it's supposed to prove that it's... it's uh, sure. Um, how, how should a Christian respond to this assertion? Uh, apart from laughing? Yes, apart uh, from it, laughing. It, it, <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's a totally subjective argument. Um, and it is, like, as you mentioned, it is in the Quran. Muhammad was accused of being a sorcerer and a poet and you know, borrowing from other people. And so Muslims will... Or and Muhammad will respond by saying, "Well, you produce something like I've just produced. You produce something as sublime and as inimitable, or you know, incapable be incapable of imitating." Um, and apparent, allegedly or according to the Quran, nobody was able to do that. Well, in fact, if you could go on Google.com and type in the true Furqan, F-U-R-Q-A-N, you'll find that some scholars who are fluent in Arabic have put together a text just as long as the Quran that rhymes just as well as the Quran and in fact is in a better better order than the Quran that squares with the Quran in terms of its poetic and theological poetic beauty and theological intricacy. And actually what it does is advances the gospel in that in that true for Khan. So that's a it's a really a silly argument that Muslims put forward. You don't want to laugh at Muslims when they put it forward but the, um, <laughs> It's, I mean, it's just because it's so subjective in nature, it's not really, I don't think, really worth considering. Right, so, so no Muslim's going to take this and go, wow, this is better. <laughs> right, they'll, they, again, they'll prefer ideology over fact every time. Okay, so um, <clears throat> Islam re- rejects even the very possibility <clears throat> that God could even have a son, or that, right. that God could even take on flesh and, and enter this world as a human. Um, is there anything a Christian can say to a Muslim to try and explain this reality? Um, I, I think you can get into theological arguments, maybe use the kind of argument that Anselm gives and uh, or Athanasius gives. Um, but what I would, I honestly would suggest is um, simply asking the question, well, how do you know? You know who are you, who are who's a human being? What's a human being to say what God can and cannot do? The question is, did he become 
uh, or did he take on human flesh? Did he become incarnate? That's the big question. And if he did, did he leave any good, you know, any evidence? Is there any evidence to suggest that a person claiming to be God was in fact God? I'd keep the argument or the discussion there rather than getting into the theology behind it all, because then you get yourself into um, more philosophical debates that are just a bit that are um, that only work if you presume, or they only work in in light of Christian faith to begin with. So, and they only make sense in light of Christian faith. So, I'd keep the the questions on an epistemological level, actually, rather than a you know a philosophical theological level. Uh, so, also, I mean, I, I guess you've already addressed by addressed this by that by that last statement here, but uh, is Islam uh, seems to have this have this view of of sin as that that, that God forgives sin just on a whim that atonement or sacrifices is not or death isn't even a result of sin um, and so for uh, an, an, um, a, a Christian who is who is maybe accustomed to trying to point out self righteousness by by showing that no work can be perfect. Uh, really, just fall short in the face of a Muslim because yeah. any imperfect act, Allah will just forgive. Yeah, if he wants to. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, we're tempted, and I mean, rightfully so, tempted to in evangelizing Muslims think in terms of law gospel, which we ought to. Um, but if somebody is a committed Muslim, they've already rejected the the, uh, the theology behind law, the law gospel distinction. So. You almost, while I would certainly suggest starting with a speaking the gospel to Muslims, absolutely start there. Um, you can anticipate immediately what the objections to the gospel um, are. So, uh, it, yeah, you meant the emphasizing the inherent sinful nature of human beings, the the, the fallible, the fallibility of man. Um, that's not a problem for Muslims, not a problem at all. And they certainly don't believe in an inherent sinful nature, but uh, um, that a person has sinned or done something wrong isn't a problem before Allah, because he will, it doesn't matter uh, whether something or someone has atoned for those sins. Uh, Allah forgives whom he forgives and doesn't forgive whom he doesn't forgive. It's it's. You have a right. God, Allah is very capricious in Islam. You, you, you've done a little bit already, but but talk more about the difference between uh, the Jesus and Islam and the Jesus and Christianity. I mean, in, in the Jesus we have in the Bible, we have uh, a Jesus who actually accepted praise from the people. Do you have that in Islam? And what are the other differences between uh, the Jesus and Islam and Christianity? Yeah, well, I guess uh, the... the picture you get in the Quran, and probably chapter 19 is the best place to go to get a as complete a picture of the Islamic Jesus in the Quran. You have a, a, a man who's born of a virgin, um, who is from, or who from his, his birth spoke and or told people throughout his, his uh, prophethood that he was a prophet of Allah. In fact, the Quran has it in chapter 19, that immediately upon being born, Jesus looks up at Mary after giving her words of comfort that announces 
that he's he's a prophet of Allah. Um, throughout the court, you get to a little picture of Jesus's early life as a young boy in the Quran, where he's performing you know, throughout his life. In fact, the Quran teaches that he performed miracles like healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, restoring sight to the blind. The Quran also records an instance where, around his childhood friends, Jesus was able to breathe life into a a clay pigeon. Um, and things like that, and I'm because of this and other instances in the Quran. It's, I'm fairly convinced that much of or the portrait of Jesus you find in the Quran is actually lifted in many ways from the Gnostic traditions of yeah. of Jesus. Uh, you in the Arabic infancy gospel, you have the story of Jesus breathing life into a a clay pigeon. Um, so you, you, that, that's basically what you get. Uh, although there's a strong insistence in the Quran in, in several places that uh, one should not view Jesus as anything, even though he was born of a virgin, he, and even though he never never died and will uh, descend from heaven at the last day, one is not to ascribe any sort of divine nature to him, according to the Quran. I mean, that's that flies, you know, that flies right in the face of Christianity. In fact, I would argue, um, and I think it's fairly obvious that. By denying the crucifixion of Jesus, obviously the Quran denies his resurrection. You do that, Muslim polemicists know, and Ahmad Didat, their famous polemicist, has written, if you can do that and show that, that that's not true, that he didn't, wasn't crucified and didn't rise, all of Christianity crumbles. And Didat's right. If, he didn't, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is, is in vain, or we're the most pitiable of all people, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so I think that that rejection of the crucifixion action in the Quran was put in there intentionally to discredit or or to falsify to allegedly falsify Christianity and to pit uh, Islam up against Christianity. Because if you look at the rise of Islam historically, it emerges in a time where it, it quickly after Muhammad's death moves out of the Arabian Peninsula, spreads eastward. But where its most significant growth was westward in places like Syria. Palestine, Egypt, and North Africa, that was all Christian land. And you have these Arabs occupying that land. And rather than, of course, embracing the religion of the people they've occupied, they sort of set up a religion that kind of sounds like the religion of the people they've occupied so that they can draw people from those populations into it. But it it certainly replaces um, or competes against the religion of the occupied and gives it a, a particular Arab flavor as well. And what are some of the most common arguments that you hear from Muslims, and what is your response? Oh, honestly, the the most common, uh, I guess there are maybe two. Uh, The the two most common uh, arguments Muslims give in response to, you know, speaking the gospel to them or um, going approaching Christianity polemically is one that the Bible is corrupt, thoroughly corrupt textually. It's been corrupted as scribes copied from when the apostles originally written. They introduced not only mistakes in spelling and word order and things like that, but they actually introduced a new theology in the text, probably influenced by, they say, St. Paul. Um, Another 
another major challenge is they will say not only is the text corrupted, but our interpretation of the text is corrupted. A proper interpretation of the biblical text would interpret the Bible in in the or through the lens of the Quran. So everything in the Bible that's that matches up with the Quran is legitimate. Everything that doesn't is illegitimate, either because it's a product of textual corruption or misinterpretation. So you you'll find Muslims making claims like um, Jesus never claimed to be divine in the Gospels. I mean, it's not just Muslims who make this claim. It's you know contemporary uh, kind of liberal biblical scholarship that puts that forward as well. Because um, they'll say, you never find Jesus saying verbatim, I am God. And, and they're right, you don't find him saying that, but he asserts all over the place that he is uh, co-equal with the Father. You know, and John, John's certainly the, probably the, the best uh, gospel for this, but even in, for example, the Gospel of Mark, they think it's chapter 42, I think around verse 60 or 62, Whereas Jesus is standing before the council, before his crucifixion, they ask him if he's the, the son of God, or the son of the blessed, I think is the way it's put, and he says, I am so. Um, you get to the end of, of, uh, end of Luke, or, Luke or John, I can't recall off the top of my head, where after, after Thomas, not the doubter, Thomas the empiricist, thrusts his hands in the side of Jesus and looks and, and feels the holes in his his hands or his wrists, and responds by saying, my Lord, my God. Well, Jesus doesn't correct him there. Um, in fact, uh, he welcomes the worship that Thomas gives to him. So you, you certainly find Jesus asserting his divine authority all over the Gospels. And um, the, these kind of challenges are pretty easy to address, but one, you know, the Christian has to know their Bible, not just as a sort of dogmatic textbook, but as a, a accurate recording of history. And the Christian has to be able to, to navigate some of the tensions you might find between the Gospels and explain why it is the case that you know, the two genealogies are different. That's pretty easy standard stuff to do, but um, it does take a little bit of homework. And lastly, uh, Dr. Francisco, uh, respond to the assertion uh, that have been made by many, uh, including our last two presidents, that, that Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Ah, boy. Well, I could give you a quote from the Quran. Chapter 9, verse 30 says that on the basis of uh, Christians' assertion that Jesus is the Son of God, their their beliefs are will eternally condemn them. So even the Quran doesn't assert that, and certainly the Bible uh, gives us a for lack of a better term, a picture of Jesus as being, or a picture of God as being one God, but three persons within the one divine essence, that, you know, a triune God, such that when Muslims assert that God is not a father because he doesn't have a son, it's impossible for him to have a son. Obviously, I mean, it's simply logical that uh, both religions are putting forward two different views of God. Um, in fact, I would argue two different gods. Uh, the God of Islam is a God of, of invention. Now, that doesn't mean that the individual Muslim, when they think of God, doesn't think of the, the uh, of a creator. They certainly do. But when the details are uh, elaborated upon, it's very clear that the God of Islam is is fashioned or is you know, is or is not the same, is not commensurate with the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Dr. Adam Francisco received his doctorate from University of Oxford in Historical Theology and Christian-Muslim Relations and is Assistant Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Francisco, thanks for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for listening to this edition of Table Scraps, the exclusive edition, internet-exclusive edition of Table Talk Radio. And we'd like to get your response from this episode. Just uh, call our toll-free number and leave your message, 866-851-5523, or you can send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Tune in again next time to Table Talk Radio.